Will you turn with me, congregation, and your copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 13? Mark chapter 13, if you care to follow along with me as we read God's word together. Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, and we'll read the whole chapter together. Mark 13, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, And you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So when you see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. 
And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things before him. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away to all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest, coming suddenly, he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> you may be wondering, why would a visiting minister preach on Mark 13 and the Olivet Discourse? And uh, why this uh, text tonight? I'm preaching through this, uh, the gospel according to Mark in my own church. And I've come to appreciate the clarity of which the Lord shines on the events that are going to take place before he comes back. Uh, that uh, the study or eschatology or the teachings on end times is not a word for a few. It's not esoteric knowledge. That means specialized knowledge for a few people to have and know. But as the Lord Jesus says, what I say to you, you four men, I say to all. 
This is our Lord Jesus, the pastor and shepherd of the sheep, giving his sheep guidance and light in the time in which he would bodily be absent from them to prepare them for what his church shall go through between his first coming and his second coming. But also because I think the church is the strongest when it's watching. I think a church that is looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and every member individually living, watching, and the church together living and watching is a strong, vibrant, and healthy church. And if you look at what Jesus is saying here, I think you're going to be watching and wanting him to come as he details some of these events which some of you may have already gone through and some of us may very well go through as he prepares us for the things to happen before he comes back. So I think a healthy church and a healthy Christian life is one in which all the people are together saying, Lord Jesus, come. Oh, master of the house, come back to your house. I can't wait for you to take an account of the talents you've given to me. I can't wait to present to you the work that you've given to me to do. I have lived ever since I've come to know your redeeming love and grace and come to know you for you. So come back, please. I think that is a healthy place, not just for individual Christians to be, but a church. So I wish to preach on it to you tonight because there is um, a lot of Well, we can say confusion or we can say obscurity uh, on the teaching of the end times and things. And as I said to you, I think our Lord Jesus is clear here and he's speaking to the sheep and he's speaking to sustain their faith and he's speaking to all of you tonight. But why is uh, this called the Olivet Discourse? Some of you may know it by that title, the Olivet Discourse. It is referred to as the Olivet Discourse because it took place on the Mount of Olives. You see that in verse 3. Now, he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives. And it's called a discourse because it's a long monologue in which Jesus is doing all the talking. And it's the longest speech that he gives here in Mark's Gospel. So it is a discourse that our Lord Jesus is delivering on the Mount of Olives, which was uh, less than a mile or so east of Jerusalem outside of the temple. Well, where is uh, this discourse uh, situated here uh, in this gospel as Mark has wrote it? Well, it comes uh, after chapter 12. And what took place in chapter 12? Well, what took place in chapter 12 is the Lord Jesus examining as the Lord of the covenant, the temple. Mark's gospel opens with the prophecy from Malachi 3.1. I will send my messenger who will go before you and the Lord will come to his temple. And the Lord Jesus has come to his temple and uh, he did not find it the place in which the worship of God was pure and true. You know that he had to purify it. And you know in it uh, they sought to kill him and rid him. But he kept going back day after day because he was called to preach the gospel until finally they betrayed him. And crucified him, but he never stopped preaching the gospel, never stopped teaching the sheep, and went back and back and back into Jerusalem. But it ends with a note of really a, a judgment by the Lord. It ends with the account of the a woman putting in her two mites. Now that's a little bit more than two cents. It's about roughly two dollars, enough to buy a couple McChickens and 
get rid of the hunger pains, but she offered them to the Lord. And the Lord said, I've seen one person give all, and I've seen many persons who are wealthy many times over uh, give out of their excess. And I think then Mark putting it here is showing us that when religion becomes cheap, it is ripe for judgment. When your hope becomes this building, and this was becoming a stumbling block for the Jews, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as long as they have the temple, God can't leave us and God can't forsake us because this is his place, this is his dwelling place. And religion had become something cheap. And the Lord found one worshiper willing to give God all there. But it also comes before Mark 14, uh, which deals with the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ and begins to narrate to us uh, the passion, uh, his betrayal and suffering. So it, it's, it's sort of a bridge from ending Jesus' public ministry, which started in Galilee at the baptism of John and ended in Jerusalem, and a bridge between the ending of his public ministry and then his sufferings, and three days later, his resurrection and ascension. So it's kind of a bridge uh, passage. Well, how should we think about this discourse? Here's how I think about it. I think about it as a farewell. Uh, You'll notice that the times that Jesus is talking about, and I'll make a case tonight, is the times we're living in. The Holy Spirit is poured out. The work of evangelism is going on, and Jesus is bodily absent from them, already ascending and having poured out the Holy Spirit. So this is something of a farewell discourse that the Lord Jesus gives to his disciples to prepare them for all that is going to come, uh, as I said, between his sufferings, death, resurrection, ascension, and his glorious return. I also like to think of it as a forecast for the age. Now, I don't know much about the science of uh, meteorology, but if it's anything like it is in the United States here in Canada, it's that one profession in which you can be wrong more times than right and still be paid, right, and keep your job. Now, how many of you go on vacation and check the forecast? Or maybe your work, you work outside and requires checking the forecast. What does a forecast? Obviously, we take it with a grain of salt, what they tell us. My church was planning to host a short-term missions trip by a fellow church who was going to come down with a youth group for a Friday and Saturday. It ended up getting called off because they called for torrential rains that never came. <laughs> so we looked at the forecast and it uh, misled us. Well, Jesus is not misleading us here. He is giving us a forecast for the age. Look at verse 23. He says, See, I have told you all things beforehand. And after that comes the end. Jesus has told you everything that is going to take place between now and the end, or at that time, between his ascension and his return in glory. He said, See, I've told you all things. I have given you a forecast by which you can then prepare as Christians, as believers, in how to live your lives, and he guides us also how to prepare and tells us what to do. So it's a very helpful discourse. Well, what, what is the structure of this passage? Uh, I have given you in the outline here its structure. Uh, there's an introduction, verses 1 through 4, and then it really just breaks down into two parts, verses 5 through 23, 
Is Jesus telling us about all the events that are going to take place before the end? Jesus telling them what are the signs that uh, point to the end? And within verses 5 through 23, there's a further division. 5 through 13 deal with all the signs that don't tell the end's near, but do tell you that the end's coming. And then in verses 14 through 23 are the signs that tell you that the end is near. That's the first big division, all the signs that point to the end, all the events that take place before the end. And then in verses 24 through verses 37, the end, as Jesus tells us what the end is and some key events with it. And then closing with a parable, because again, why does Jesus teach in parables? They're memorable. Jesus wants us to remember these words and to live by them. So he tells us two parables at the end so that we would live by them and commit them to memory. That's why I say this is not a part in our Bible we skip over and say, that is so confusing. Can there be anything good and helpful here when our Lord Jesus taught it in such a way that we would remember it and would live by it? Well, what what purpose does the Lord Jesus have in these verses? I think it's kind of twofold. I already mentioned to you verse 23. Jesus is forearming his church. To be forewarned of something is to be forearmed. I remember getting off, or one of the places I went, I was, in, I was, a, I was a United States Marine. I guess there's no ex-Marines we say, but... Uh, in my time in the U.S. military, one of the places I went to was Australia. And we were getting an in-country debrief. And they were informing us that 10 of the world's most deadliest spiders and snakes live here. <laughs> Every moment I'm thinking, great, I'm going to spend two weeks out there in the bush training with the Aussies. Can't wait. I'm also told that many of the local or many of the natives will tell the locals if you're going uh, walking, do not get off the path. Because if you get off the path, those dangerous spiders and snakes are there. And inevitably, they don't listen <laughs> and they're bitten and bad things happen. But you can see they forewarn you, stay on the path, and you are forearmed. Here, Jesus is forearming his church, forearming all of us by forewarning us of the things that his church will go through. Now you might ask, again, some of this we think this is common to us because we've lived 2,000 years now in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. But to the men in the first century, this was a very helpful discourse and it became more helpful, I'm sure, after the resurrection to the apostles because earlier in the gospel, the Jews really had no idea how these things were going to end. They had no idea there was going to be this long interim before the Messiah would come in glory, this age of suffering for his church and for his people. Even after the Mount of Transfiguration as they're coming down and Jesus is telling them, now don't say anything about this until I rise from the dead. We know because Mark tells us they didn't even know what that meant, what Jesus meant. They thought, well, how can, what does it mean you have to suffer? Because we know Elijah is going to come first. Did you know at the Passover meal they kept a seat for Elijah because they thought Elijah's going to come and when Elijah comes and he's going to come on Passover night then the Lord Je then the Messiah is going to come and even Jesus had to paint for his own disciples Elijah's also a suffering figure John the Baptist so caught up were they in an idea of a kingdom that's going to come immediately in glory <laughs> and as I hope to make clear and as you 
Many of you may well very well know. We live right now in the kingdom under the cross. And the kingdom under the cross gives way to the kingdom of glory and the crown. So this may be common knowledge to us, per se. We may be used to this. But it was not something these men knew and were used to. And I think besides forearming us, Jesus wants to focus us. You notice in this introduction, it starts with this statement by one of Jesus' disciples who is amazed at this temple. And I'm sure if you and I were there and saw it, we would be amazed. The stones built by it were known as Herodian stones. They were famous to the world. I forget the dimensions. They were enormous. This was uh, one of the wonders of the world. And so it begins with the disciple who is taken up by what he sees. But notice Jesus' question to him there in verse 2. Do you see these great buildings? Now our, our Lord Jesus isn't just, obviously he knows he sees these. But what's his point by saying, do you see these things? Because Jesus is going to go on. It's amassed a little bit in our English translations. But the word there, do you see, is used in verse 5, take heed. It's the same Greek word. It's used in verse 9, watch out for yourselves. It's the same Greek word. It's used there uh, in verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation. It's used there in verse 23, take heed. It's the same Greek word. Choose there in verse 27, or excuse me, 26, they will see. This word comes up a lot of times in this discourse because the Lord Jesus is trying to focus his church on what they're seeing and looking at. These men are seeing and looking at the temple, and Jesus is turning their gaze to look at other things. Look at yourselves, <laughs> look out at the things in the world that are going to lay traps for you. Look after one another. And chiefly, what I believe the Lord Jesus is focusing on, watch out and look for my coming. Because that's something we're all going to see. That's where we should be on. Looking, having our focus changed from mighty, wonderful, great buildings to the coming of the Son of Man. Because as Peter tells us, this earth presently is reserved for fire. The heavens shall dissolve and all of the works in it will be burnt up. All the efforts of millions and millions of dollars, millions of man hours put into it to be burnt up. There's a bit of vanity, vanity, all is vanity, right? But God has a great purpose the burning up will be of judgment, but also of restoration, also of refining. And we know we live in promise of the new heavens and earth, which we don't yet see. So Jesus would have us take our eyes off of the things that we see. And I want to be careful I preach that, because I'm looking at a lot of people I like seeing. You parents, I'm sure, like to see your children. So we've got to be careful how we understand what he means and we're looking at. He's not meaning your homes are utterly worthless and you shouldn't spend time building anything like that. But he is reminding us, and we should live in constant memory, there is unseen things that are imperishable that the Father is pleased one day to bestow and that we may have and enjoy forever. And that is what the Lord Jesus would have it look at because there's a lot of other things that we're going to go through that we may not want to see. There are ugly, horrible things that we're going to see. We're going to see people deceiving people. Gonna, I remember 
and I'll just maybe jump into it now to be good. Well, let me say one more thing. Who is Jesus speaking to here? Look there at verse 37, the final verse. I say to you, and that's his four disciples, but what I say to you, I say to all. Jesus is speaking to his followers in every age. So he's speaking to all of you here tonight that these words are for you. So what has our Lord said to us? I already talked about the introduction and said the things there that need to be said. So let's look at this first part, verses 5 through 23, that deal with the signs of the end that do not show its nearness. Now I say that these are the signs of the end that don't show its nearness, because if you look there at verse 7, Jesus says explicitly, the end is not yet. And what is he talking about the end? He's talking about the end of this present evil age. Uh, Our Lord Jesus, back in Mark chapter 10, Um, after he had dealt with the rich young ruler who could not give up everything, wanted to inherit eternal life. Jesus said, here's how you do it. Give up everything and follow me. Couldn't. Peter then said, well, we've given up everything. And Jesus reminded him, you don't inherit the kingdom just because you give up everything. Well, you inherit the kingdom when you um, turn from your sin and put God first in your life and become a child of God and a follower of mine. Faith, you become an heir of the kingdom by Faith, But Jesus makes that wonderful promise that in this life, whoever forsakes and, and makes this costly choice to follow Jesus, he'll give you a hundredfold now. You'll get houses back. You'll get brothers and sisters back. You'll get mothers and children back. You'll get lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus lives, as the Jewish scriptures taught, you might say two great ages. There's the age that's been going on ever since God first created in, in Adam. And the new age that began when, Jesus, when God raised up Jesus from the dead and he entered into eternal life himself. And we live in the power of that new age by the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that in Hebrews. So Jesus is saying, here's the things that we're going to go through in this age. These are the signs and the end being the end of this age. The end is not yet by these signs. So that's what Jesus means by the end. The end of this age, which will then bring about the beginning of the age to come, or our, really our entrance, maybe the better way to say the consummation of the age to come, because there's something of what's called, and maybe you've heard this term, the overlap of the ages. <laughs> because of the resurrection and because of the pouring out of the Spirit, that life that's to come already, that life in the Spirit, that eternal life is a reality and something we already enjoy in Jesus Christ. In fact, we're even seated in the heavenly places, it said. It's a question of are we more here on earth? Are we a more part of heaven and where Jesus is at? And that's some of the tension we live as Christians. So there's already that overlap in the ages, but this age, this present evil age, will come to its definite end. But Jesus says when you see these signs, the end isn't yet. Well, what are these signs? The first one is deception. You see there there in verse 5. Take heed, see, that no one deceives you. Why? For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. There are going to be people coming and saying, I'm the Messiah. Now, that's an interesting thing, right? We're used to what Jesus looks like through storybooks. But how would you know if someone came, right? How would you be defended against deception? If someone were to come and say, yes, I am the Messiah, I'm him. How would you, how would you be able to say, no, that's not the truth? Because surely people do it. 
Surely people have come and led others and started cults, told people the Messiah, told them to come, or even presented false messiahs to them and given you false Christ to believe. And as I said, one of the things we aren't going to want to see in this age that's going to make us want to see that glorious vision of Jesus coming back is people going out and deceiving others. That is an ugly sight to watch people peddle lies to lead people astray. When I was preparing this passage, it just happened in God's providence on a Wednesday afternoon, a couple of Jehovah Witnesses stopped by my house. I thought, why are Jehovah Witnesses coming by my house on a week when I'm preparing to preach on this Olivet Discourse? And I'm told specifically there will be people preaching false Christ. They preach a false Christ. They preach uh, that Christ is not the Son of God in the sense of being divine, that He's a creature. That Christ can't save you. That Christ can't make atonement for your sins. That Christ can't be your Lord and give you everlasting life. Only the true Christ, the Jesus who came, suffered, and died. So, how, how then are you? Do, do you guard against deception? Right? Well, you know the truth. And you know the truth through being taught it through the Scriptures. You know the truth through receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And one of the best places to ground you in Christology is 1 John. Because 1 John is dealing with a church schism centered around a false Christ being preached. We believe in the Jesus, who's the Son of God, who's come in the flesh. He's come by water. He's come by blood. He's risen and ascended. And none of us are ever going to have to wonder and listen to somebody saying, He's here in person because we're all going to know it. <laughs> it says, they will see me. Verse 26, coming in the clouds. And Matthew adds the account about, and I happened to be driving to church that Sunday morning. And there was roadkill on the side of the road. And I knew exactly it was roadkill on the side of the road. Because ever before I got close to it, I saw the vultures swirling or circling and sitting there feasting on the side of the road. And Jesus says, you will know where the vultures circle, where the eagles are at. You know there's the, the roadkill. Nobody's going to have to ask, has Jesus come back? Because you'll know Jesus has come back. So Jesus is saying, don't be deceived. Part of this age that we, the church will go through will be an age of deception. That's horrible. That's a horrible thing to think there are people out there who want to tell you lies. Want to tell your children lies, grandchildren lies, great-grandchildren lies. That's a horrible Ugly thing. Terrible thing. And how do we counter that? Prayer. Oh God, keep us. Oh God, teach us. Oh God, give us the Spirit. And open up the Word of God and know the truth. So deception. Now, deception in itself won't tell us the end is near. What's the next thing? Sorrows. You go on in verse 7. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows. Jesus says a couple of key things here about these sorrows. His counsel to them is don't be troubled. And he gives us a wonderful illustration to help us understand the point that he's making here. If you look there at verse, end of verse 8, he says, These are the beginnings of sorrows. You may be familiar with other translations that say these are the beginnings of birth pains. I see many mothers in this room. I see many fathers who don't know those pains but have seen your wives go through them. What is it about when birth pains begin? They don't tell you how close 
The baby is, right? Delivery is yet. They just know that it's coming. You know when birth pangs start, the baby is coming, but you can't calculate it's coming in 30 minutes, 45 minutes, 20 hours later. You just know that the end is coming. And that's what Jesus is saying about all these terrible sorrows that come from war and earthquakes and famines and troubles, these things which are judgments in the Old Testament and surely judgments now, that these are the beginnings of sorrows. They point to the end. They point to the joy and peace of the new child when it comes, right? Jesus teaches us, yes, very painful. I don't personally know. But I'm told, and maybe the mothers can verify afterwards, do you forget all those pains when you see the child and you hear it crying and it's laying on your chest? And that's joy and it's great peace. And Jesus is saying there is joy and there is peace to come after these sorrows. But the second thing, and this is a word I want us to hear and look at, uh, Jesus says there at verse 7, they must happen. Must. Why must they happen? And that is a divine must. And Jesus is saying, this, is, this has God's will behind it. <laughs> These sorrows have infinite wisdom behind them. This isn't blind fate. This isn't evil run out of muck. This isn't men and all their evil counsels doing whatever they want in the world, but bound even by God and his counsel. This is for our comfort to know. And if you've lived through war, if you've lived through famine, if you've lived through earthquake, if you've lived through civil unrest and troubles, have you ever thought, this must take place? And I would never want, and this is something I enjoy about the biblical perspective on these sorrows, knowing that it's God's will never takes away the sorrow, it's real sorrow, but it makes us write sorrow in hope. <laughs> it makes us not go to despair. It helps us lift up and see even something good in it. And many of you may know that there was a big Limus family reunion this past week. And several of us were staying at uh, uh, Tim and Heidi's, and I was there. And I said I would be good this week on vacation. I would bring few books, so I read one of their books. And one of the books I picked off of their shelf was, um, maybe some of you have read it. It's called God's Smuggler, written by uh, Brother Andrew. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I had much in common with this man, a combat veteran who was living for really nothing in this world until he became to know Jesus, and his life was utterly different ever since he came to know Jesus. I thought, wow, I have a lot in common with this man. I was taken back to my espousal days when I first came to know the Lord and trusted in him and served him in his kingdom. But one of the wonderful things is he, he learned just enough of German in occupied Holland to then later stand up on a bus, and I forget the communist country, and say, I'm looking for Christians in German, and get linked in with the mission work there. What a joy that the evils of war, and by the evil men who are covetous, and wanting what's not theirs, and bringing such ills on this world, in God's divine must, it furthered the work of the gospel, and brought salvation to his people behind an iron curtain. So when I say there's a divine must, it's to lift us up and to see the good judgment God is bringing upon the wicked. But good he's also using as after that judgment, he brings his word of peace. 
One of the things I've come to know about Christians, there's some of the first places to go where there's war because there's often refugees, where there's earthquakes, where there's famines, where there's troubles. And why do they want to go there? Probably to go something like this. The heavens declare the glory of God. God has been, if they're unbelievers, God has been speaking to you your whole life, telling you He is your God, He has made you, and you should worship Him, know Him, love Him, trust Him, call upon Him. And you haven't listened to any of that. And then He brought this famine upon you, and now the question is, are you ready to listen now to His word of grace? Because as Jeremiah says in Lamentations, why should we cry when we are punished for our own sins? Why should a living man who has been spared from these great evils, who finds himself still alive after all of this, why should he complain for his sufferings? You know, Christians want to be go, go because it's a time then to preach the gospel to them. To say, listen up and let me tell you about something eternal and everlasting. Let me tell you about a God who forgives those who disobey and don't listen. Let me tell you about the God who will give a new heart. Let me tell you about a God who will give you a lasting home. So yes, sorrows. Yeah, we don't want to see these evils. And if you've ever seen them, you know how evil they are. I have seen some of it. I've been to war. I've seen some of the horrible evils. I'll tell you some of the most horrible evil of it is to see the lawlessness of it. People that come in and the occupiers can think they're above the law and begin not to live under that law. And that is horrible and ugly and you don't want to see it. But praise God for what good he brings out of even these ills to further the work of his gospel. Sorrows then. Sorrows do not tell us that the end is near, but they tell us the end's coming. Every time you open up your paper, now you might have heard the joke, right? Some people get their eschatology from the paper. They open up the paper and they try matching events and matching dates and doing all that. Don't do that. But when you do open up your paper and you read war has started in Ukraine or elsewhere, you should say, praise God, the end's coming. That's a sign that Jesus is coming back. You read about another famine, praise God, Jesus is coming back. Read about civil unrest in another country. Praise God. Jesus is coming back. Changes how we look at these things, isn't it? When we see that these are signs telling us that the end is coming. And to help remind us. Because <laughs> Jesus is going to end with the note to be prepared for that coming. Now, thirdly, the third uh, sign that shows us the end's coming but doesn't tell us how near is persecution or opposition. You see that beginning there in verse 9. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogues. Jesus is saying you'll be treated like heretics and as apostates from the church. That was the Jewish church. They're going to bring you before the elders and going to execute church discipline upon you. And you, many Christians have undergone that. Um, OPC in its own history and denomination has, has gone through that where faithful men and a faithless church has undergone and been treated as essentially, although they're really the apostate church, when you have faithful people in the apostates, they're treated as apostates and they're disciplined by the church, they're defrocked, they're kicked out. You will go through these things. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake for a testimony to them. I want you to marvel at this. Most people who sit in positions of power 
generally, gen, generally do not have time to hear about the world to come, do they? They don't want to hear about having to get rid of everything. They generally do not associate with the church and with the gospel and hear it. But how, how is God going to get his gospel before them, right? I've never gone through it. I've never been brought before civil magistrates and authorities for preaching the gospel. So I, I don't know what that's like. I'm sure it's no fun. I'm sure it's intimidating. <laughs> I'm sure it's meant to be. But let us not lose sight also the divine purpose in it. It is for a testimony even to them. Even to them who would not want to hear it, God is going to so work it out to bring it to them that they will hear of the gospel. And not only you might say hear it, but see something of it. Remember when the apostle Paul stood before Agrippa? I could wish all of you rich nobles here were like me, except for these chains. That might provoke some of them later to say, what is the reason for the hope in you? How can you have nothing and you say you want me to be like you? Or you want me to be like you? How, what? Are you mad? <laughs> or do you have something that I need to know about? But it's also a two-edged sword. Yes, it is a testimony of God's kingdom and grace to even them. But also as testimonies are entered into a courtroom when someone gets up and gives evidence, yeah, I saw that person. Though therefore when they go trial, they can be held against them. It will also be a testimony for them if they reject it. You heard the gospel. I even brought people in chains before you. You had a wonderful lot in life, you thought, as a king. Look at the lot I gave this person. Remember what Jesus tells Paul in his commission? I'm going to show that man how much he's going to suffer for me. What a commission. Could you imagine getting that from the Lord Jesus? I'm going to show this man, I'm going to show you, Paul, just how much a human being can suffer for me. And he did. Because God is God. And Christ is king. And he's doing wonderful things in this world. So opposition, persecution, watch out for yourselves. Notice though, what is the great cause of this opposition? What is the cause of persecution? It's there in verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. The good news that this world has a true king. Jesus Christ. The good news that there is a faithful king and ruler to whom God has entrusted all power and authority and his name is Jesus. And he is the possessor of every tribe and tongue. The nations are his. The world is his. The inheritance is his. That's the good news. And through his atoning work, through his suffering on the cross, for the sake of what he did, everybody who believes in him and professes him as their king, will have their sins forgiven and receive everlasting life. For that message, we face persecution. Telling the world who the true ruler and king is. It's not Satan. It's not the powers of darkness. It's not the evil forces. It's not whatever regime that is blatantly opposing God. It is Jesus Christ. It is the son of righteousness. It is the king of peace. That's the good news. And his redeeming love for sinners. 
That is why we're being opposed. That is the persecution for making that profession, that confession, that you need to stop living like your king and live like Jesus is king. And if you don't like that, too bad, right? Because not liking it's not going to change it. You've got to come to terms as sinners. You're not king. And we have to get that through the world that you're not king. And we've got to persuade him through our lives how good it is for us not to be king. And how good it is for Jesus to be king. And to trust in Jesus as king. But we're also, but notice too, the cause of it is also the Holy Spirit. And what I mean by that is the Holy Spirit in us leading the church to do evangelism, driving us to preach it as the Spirit's ministry in the world to proclaim Christ. And he does that through the means of human voices. But it is also the Spirit's ministry. But when they arrest you, deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. That is not an excuse not to know the gospel because the only reason these people are in this trouble is because they know the gospel. What it's saying is, when you're kept up late, (laughs) maybe you're in a country you don't know the language so well and you're caught up by customs and brought before things and you don't know all the intricacies, trust and know that the Holy Spirit will be with you and he will give you what you need in that hour to speak his words and to proclaim faithfully the Lord Jesus. And it ends there in the horrible things that we never want to see in verses 12 and 13. Brother betraying brother, father's child, children against parents, causing them to be put to death. And you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. It's an ugly thing to see human beings hate others, isn't it? ugly thing to see brothers betraying brothers to death, fathers their own children, all because they will cling to their sin, all because they will cling to their idols and not bow the knee to the Lord Jesus. And what does Jesus say? What are we to do? He says, don't give up, but endure. And what is the best way, beloved, to endure? Be thoroughly converted. What do I mean by say, be thoroughly converted? Jesus preached a parable back in Mark 4. You know it as the parable of the soils. And he tells us one soil is rocky. People are glad for a while to be Christians. And then persecutions come and they forsake their profession. How do you become thoroughly converted? Of course, this is the work of God's grace. This is done by the power of the Holy Spirit. But at one place you may start is go to Romans 5 in those first 11 verses and meditate and understand what it's saying there. That we only glory in tribulation after we come to glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. You really need to come and see that a greater enemy and more frightful to you than any man is the wrath of God. And you need to come to see you're a sinner and you are of no hope, but will face that apart from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. You really need to become contrite and broken in spirit and broken in heart for Jesus and cling to him as your only hope. That's what I mean by being thoroughly converted. 
knowing yourself to be a lost sinner, feeling that condemnation of sin and the wrath of God against it and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, casting yourself on God's mercy and having a greater fear of God than of man. So being thoroughly converted, as our Lord tells us, is how we endure this persecution, not having rocky soil. Well, do all Christians undergo these persecutions and sorrows and deceptions to the same intensity? No. But all Christians do go through these things. You know, some, some people, when they teach on the end times, would like to see these things, and they may be convinced by Scripture, that Jesus is talking about only events that took place in in AD 70, and they are no longer relevant for the church today, speaking about stuff that's happened in the past. But I would just simply ask you, if you've studied church history and know, in what time since Pentecost, our Lord ascended, poured out the Spirit, which started evangelism, started sharing the gospel, in what age has there not been people preaching false messiahs? In what age has there not been these sorrows of war? Famines, tribulations, um, troubles, earthquakes? In what age have Christians not been opposed and persecuted, even martyred for the faith? In what, in what volume of church history do we not see any of these things? And of course, we see it at all. The Lord Jesus is speaking in this. Did they have their fulfillment in those days? Yes. But they have their fulfillment in our days, and they're pointing towards a great fulfillment before he comes. So those are all the signs that tell you the end's coming. And I pray and hope, beloved, when you see these ugly sights of deception, you see these ugly sights of these sorrows, you see these ugly sights of persecution and opposition, people who are seeking to save the souls of men, being mocked, rejected, and hated, when you see these ugly sights, that you'll say to yourself, the end is coming. And praise God even for the must of these things and the good that he brings out through them. But let's go on uh, to, the, to the signs that do show us that they're near. That may sound surprising to you because Jesus says that nobody knows the hour. Yes, it is wrong to ever make a prediction of a time when the Lord Jesus will come. But that doesn't mean you won't know that his coming's not near. Because he tells us you can know that it's near. And that's found there in verses 14 through 27. And these break down into two things. The abomination of desolation and the great tribulation. What is the abomination of desolation? That language is found in Daniel 11.31, Daniel 12.11. What is this? Well, what's an abomination? The abomination is something God hates and finds detestable. False worship. Some idol. Something set up in his house that is not his, but is idolatrous. And it's something that as a false worship, as sacrilege, that leads to desolation. What is desolation? Well, desolation is when you go to a place and it's empty and it's vacant. And it's talking about false worship being set up in the house of God that drives out the faithful because they're not going to bow down to Baal. They're not going to bow down to the Roman emperors. They're not going to bow down to any other god. 
For the abomination of desolation is false worship set up in the house of God, which drives out the faithful, which brings out great tribulation and persecution upon them for their opposition to this regime, which seeks to control all things. Now Daniel, in his prophecies in chapter 11 and 12, spoke of an event that had a fulfillment uh, already in around the year B.C., I think it's 187. And Antiochus Epiphanes and one of the uh, Syrian kings who came up and profaned the house of God, set up an altar over God's altar and slaughtered a pig on it. So my question then, right, is was this fulfilled in AD 70 in the destruction of the temple? Well, Jesus says he's using a passage that already had a fulfillment almost 200 years prior. In Luke's gospel, when he talks about this, he makes it explicit that Jesus is talking about uh, the destruction of the temple. He talks about these are the days of vengeance. He doesn't even use the language of abomination of desolation. But when you see it, the, the, the uh, city encircled uh, by the armies, you know that the end has come. So my question when I say, or what I'm trying to say to you is, our Lord Jesus teaches us that prophecies can have multiple fulfillments. He took a word in Daniel that had a fulfillment 200 years before he was on earth. He spoke a word here that said this was going to have a fulfillment in 87. And he's speaking a word that's saying this is going to have a fulfillment someday, as Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 about the man of sin and the apostasy and rebellion that will happen then. His exalting himself above God is wanting to change the laws and times and the tribulation and persecution that will happen then. He's speaking also in the great tribulation. That's uh, the language there in Ezekiel 38 and 39 about the battle of Gog and Magog. Uh, Revelation 16 and 19. That after a millennial period, Satan will be let loose again. To And I don't know where all of you are at. I'll tell you where I'm at because what I say may influence how you listen to me or not. <laughs> I hold to what's known as the all-mill position that the church has been in. Uh, this millennium since Christ ascended and reigns as king, and I don't hold or look forward to a, a 1,000 period of, of future glory at some time to come, but I look for the Lord Jesus to come. And what I mean by that is even the Lord Jesus says at the end of this time period, Satan will be let loose, allowed to deceive the nations, bring them against uh, the picture there, against the holy city, and in bright shining glory, the Lord will return judgment and destroy his enemies, and bring in the everlasting kingdom. So that's what we're talking about. Jesus is saying these signs. You can know the end is near when you see this take place. Now this is also kind of tricky because Jesus doesn't say, is this going to be worldwide? How much of the church will go through this? Will it be equally a church in America, equally the church in China, equally the church in Europe? Those are things that uh, aren't clear to us. But what is clear and what you should be looking for and paying attention to, and as our reformers, I don't know if it's in the three-forming unity. It used to be in the Westminster Confession of Faith until the revision. But they confessed that the Pope was the Antichrist because of that abomination of desolation called the Mass when they thought that Christ was being re-sacrificed and losing sight of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the great persecution and tribulation that came upon the reformers who were faithful to the gospel, faithful to the apostles' writings, and were persecuted of it. And so they saw a fulfillment then, and we can look back that 
Though they were pretty adamant that was then, 400 years later, we can say, okay, that wasn't the great tribulation. That wasn't the abomination of desolation. That wasn't the antichrist that the apostle John tells us in 1 John 2, 1, that's coming. And we know he's coming because many antichrists have come. So we're looking for a fulfillment to come. But you can know the end's coming near when you see some false worship set up in the house of God, the faithful fleeing, and horrendous tribulation coming upon it. And notice what Jesus says about this tribulation. It's unique. Never before has such tribulation come on earth. Never will it happen again. That was also language used in Daniel. But we know great tribulation has happened even since the destruction of Jerusalem. It is shortened. Daniel's prophecy ends. God, as he brought upon his own people, usually brings judgment upon a cycle of seven. And Daniel prophesies that this persecution will only end, last for three and a half years. God shortens it for his chosen people because he wants to save people. And for the sake of their, and for his mercy and for their sake, he's going to shorten these days. So horrific will they be. And really what we see in them is heightened characteristics of this age already. There'll be deceit. Look, Christ is coming. Look, he's here. Do not believe it. Of course, in the day in Jerusalem, what, what Jesus is saying is he loves his people. And he's saying, when you see this, get out of town. Leave the Jerusalem. And the church did leave it. They were spared this punishment. But many people, because they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, they saw these evils coming. They knew God loved this temple. And they said, no, the Messiah is here. The Messiah is coming. Thinking that God is going to save his people, save the Jewish people, save the temple. And preaching, no, no, the Messiah is here. And Jesus is saying, don't listen to him. And don't listen to him in any age. Whoever preaches some Messiah coming, because you won't have to ask again, has the Messiah come back? Has the Son of Man come? And what is the Son of Man? What does that language mean? That's from Daniel 7. It means the everlasting king of God's everlasting kingdom. The one who comes and slays the little horn and gives the kingdoms to God's people. So, this great tribulation is unique, it's one of a kind, it's shortened, and it really deals with heightened characteristics of this age. Now, beloved, I rejoice to tell you that you now have, all of you have heard all things that will take place before the end comes. Thank the Lord Jesus now. Go home and thank him tonight. Thank the Lord Jesus. <laughs> That you know everything that's going to take place before the end. You know the things that are going to take place that tell you the end's coming, that don't tell you that it's near. You also know the things that are going to happen upon earth that tell you that it's near. And, and I'm certain that the Lord Jesus means it that way, because if you go on with me there to verse 24, we begin to look at the end. And the end focuses on the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, we see there that it's a dark backdrop. The sun's going to be darkened. The moon's not going to give its light. The stars of heaven will fall. The powers will be shaken, right? You get this idea that normally there's great lights in the sky giving us light. They're not going to be there. I don't think he means that these literally are going to happen. He means to say times are going to be dark before they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of great power and glory, great light, a dark backdrop to the brilliance of the coming of the Son of Man and slaying of the lawless one. This is also language, and you'll forgive me, I don't have exact references, but the prophet Isaiah and other places, this language of the, of the sun being dark and the moon not giving its light, when God would bring judgment 
and bring one king to nothing and change the who was in charge and ruling. There'd be a change of power. This is language that often accompanied it. And it's to tell us that there is going to be a great change of power. Revelation eleven fifteen, and one of those cycles that John gives us of the end times. We are all going to be rejoicing and saying when Jesus comes back, the kingdoms of this earth have now become the kingdoms of God and his Messiah. When Jesus comes, there will be a definitive change of power. Now, he has already been invested with that. It's his. Nobody's denying it here. But many people in the world deny it. Many of the people don't live by it. And all those kingdoms that have been left for a time to have their little bit of power all under Christ's rule and reign will be taken from them. And there will be a definitive change of power forever when all the kingdoms will become his. It's universal, the coming of the Son of Man. I've said this to you several times. They will see him coming on the sun, uh, coming on the clouds of power and glory. And it means salvation there in verse 27. Salvation for God's chosen ones. Though whatever evil powers may do in scattering the church, God is going to, Christ is going to come with his angels. He's going to send them. They're going to gather his elect from the four winds from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. He's going to gather them together. And the events will also accompany that day of judgment, making the new heavens and new earth, the rewards and entering in the kingdom. Not elaborated here, but are here and ends on this wonderful word of comfort. A dark backdrop. You might say our knight in shining armor coming, or you like the Lord of the Rings. Was the, what's that dark battle? And then he, I think it's the second movie and they come in. I don't, I don't know all the references, but... Either way, the Lord Jesus, our knight in shining armor, coming, rescuing us, and bringing salvation. Now I said, I know that Jesus means these, uh, these last ones, that we might know how near it is, because Jesus gives us a parable. Verse 28 about the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things happening, you know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation by no means pass away to all these things take place. What are the tender branches and leaves? The signs that Jesus had told us of the nearness, the signs that show its nearness, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation. What is the summer? His coming, the coming of the Son of Man. What is this generation referred to? It refers to his generation, the generation that Jesus lived in. But what are the all things, and this is where many get tripped up at, what are the all things will take place in this generation before I come back? Many critical scholars read this and say, see, Jesus said that all this was going to come back. Jesus said he was going to come back in that first generation. He didn't come back. Therefore, he can't be trustworthy. He's not the Messiah and you shouldn't follow. Well, they don't read it right. The all things there in verse 30, all things must take place. You have to read it in context. It refers to when you see these things happening in verse 29. Well, what are these things happening? The things that Jesus tells us in the parable are happening that tell you that it's near. So the all things being, of course, the signs that don't tell you it's near. But there was an abomination of desolation that brought about destruction in in AD 7. There was tribulation that God's people underwent at that time in the destruction of the temple. That's what Jesus is talking about. But he's not saying that that exhausted it. Because we know that he hasn't come back yet. But he's saying that had a fulfillment. But Jesus is preaching from the events in his own day. The nearness of his coming. And you may be going, how near is it if it's been 2,000 years? I remind you how God reckons time is not how we reckon time. 
One day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. According to that reckoning, it's been two days. Two days since the Lord Jesus uh, ascended into heaven, and that's it. So let's not get too wrapped around the times and what Jesus is saying, but have focused on the fact that he is coming, and all the events in the world are pointing to he's coming. And let's end with, why is it important that we as God's people be focused on his coming? Because that is where Jesus ends. Jesus says, watch and pray. Why does he say watch and pray? Because you don't know the hour when I'm coming. You might know it's near, but you don't know the hour. In fact, nobody knows it. Angels don't know it. I don't know it. In my um, incarnate, humbled state, I do not know it as the Son of Man. Only the Father knows it. Therefore, what should you do? Don't go to sleep. What does it mean to go to sleep? It means to be careless in your Christian profession. What does it mean to watch and stay awake? It means to be diligent in your Christian profession. Well, how should we as Christians watch? Paul talks about this in several places in his letters. I recommend to you 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Paul talks about putting on your spiritual armor. Another advantage of being in the military, I know what it is to keep watch. I know what it is to be on a rotation split up through the night where I take my turn to stay awake for four hours with all my armor and kit on to stay awake because... Bad guys might be coming or something may happen that you have to deal with. That's what he means. But what armor is he talking about? The armor of faith, the armor of hope, the armor of love, or the spiritual armor there in Ephesians 6. I think, really, if I may make it clear to you, what does it look like to stay awake and watch? I appreciate, again, the parable Jesus tells us. You can imagine, right? Imagine your home's not your home. And it's been rented to you by the landlord or by the master of the house who's given you a task to do. But know that he's coming back to the house. And he doesn't want to find the house as a party zone, does he? He doesn't want to find the house being used for what you thought you might use it for, but what he left you to do it for. And what this really boils down to in our life is if Jesus has made you a father, be the best father according to God's word you can be. He's made you a mother. Be the best mother, according to God's word, he's made you to be. He's made you a Christian. Be the best Christian, according to God's word, he's made you to be. If he's given you a particular calling in ministry, be the best in that ministry and calling he's given you to be. If he's made you a spouse, be the best spouse you can be in your calling. If he's put you in school and you're a student, be the best student you can be. If he's given you a work and a place and a commonwealth where you're a citizen, be the best citizen that you can be in that commonwealth, in that place, in that place of appointment. That's what it means. It's not some extra duty added on your other duties. I would say this is the great duty to live like Jesus is coming back. Because that puts it in a healthful perspective, right? When you know the master's coming back to the house, this can be something frightening where I really want to leave you tonight. I would encourage you all to go home and think on this. Think on it tonight. Think on it through this week. Until this becomes something of a delight. That your perspective on life is not maybe one of the annoyance that, oh, I'm going to have to give an account someday. I'm going to have to tell somebody about what I did and I'm going to have to be responsible for that but that you would so meditate on it and be brought to a place of joy and delight that yes, I get to be accountable to my Lord Jesus. 
I know how gracious, loving, forgiving, kind, and good. I know he's full of his grace and gifts to help me. And I know what a joy it is to live and serve him, that we live in that heart and that place. Let me give you an example of what it might look like to live this way. My wife is smarter than I. Many of you know that probably already. And we will often talk about what I'm preaching on and we'll want to talk about where I think the sermon might go, applications. And one day we were disagreeing about it. And we kind of left in a state of disagreement. I go back up to my study. And I had been reading on this passage. And I said, if the Lord Jesus were to come right now, I could not stand before him with a clear conscience. So I closed my book, walked down outside, found her out back with our little daughter Rose, and went up and said to her, can we please be friends? And gave her up. Because I could not go on in this state where we weren't reconciled. That's what it means to live watching for the Lord Jesus. Every hour, every day. That's what it practically boils down to when you think disputes in home, disputes in church, disputes at work, or whatever the things may be, living in that light of, if Jesus were to come back right now, or maybe you show up to a session meeting, if Jesus were to come and, and, and right now, what would he think of how we're speaking about the members or or what would he think about how we are using the church's funds? You can see it's very practical to live in that light and not lose sight of. We are accountable as Christians. And we want to be accountable, right? Because we've come to learn. It's impossible not to be. And we should learn to love the king that God's given us and to be accountable to him. So this is a very practical doctrine. This is why I wanted to preach on it, encourage you, hopefully to encourage you tonight and put you in a helpful perspective. Thank you for sticking with me. I know this is probably longer than usual. You may never have to invite me back again then. But wanted to preach upon this because as I said, beloved, I think watching is very practical. I think it leads to healthy, joyful Christian living. I think it can end a lot of nonsense in churches and things we do if we would all live in that light that Jesus is coming, help to bring unity and peace. And so the question I leave you with then is, what are you watching for? What things keep you awake that you are watching for? I hope and pray it's the Lord Jesus, and may he give you all grace to continue to serve him and to watch for him until he...